Romans 14, if you have a Bible with you, you'll find it helpful uh, to have a thumb in there or a finger or some other form of digit uh, so that you can follow along. Um, Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. And we pray that you would impress its truth upon our hearts and our lives and in our faith this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I wonder whether you've seen anything like this around Leeds. You probably have. You can hardly miss them, and certainly not around this area near to the church. Uh, Does anyone know the code name, I guess, of the artist who produces them? Burley Banksy. Burley Banksy, that's right, it's Burley Banksy. Um, Yeah, and there are loads around around Beast, and this one I took on my way home from work. Um, They're all related to Leeds United. There are lots of them, not all of them, but lots of them have messages of unity. So there's this one, me leads, you leads, all leads, or there's, uh, there's all leads, aren't we, which I think is a kind of slogan for the club or something, um, and uh, it seemed appropriate to choose this one as my title, given how close we are to Elland Road and the subject of the passage, uh, marching on together. All these messages of unity. Now, I'm, I'm not really a football fan myself. I'll be upfront about that, and you can egg me later, or possibly not, based on what the passage says. Um, but I, I, I'm not really a, a football fan myself. Um, but I, I presume that all these messages of unity are because football terraces are known for a, a kind and encouraging atmosphere. Uh, fans of opposing teams treat each other with kindness, gentleness, respect. People who make mistakes are given space to understand and learn from those mistakes, or all that kind of thing. Maybe something along... Okay, well, I don't know much about football terraces, but I do know a little bit about church life, and tension and conflict can be part of church life, can't they? Paul's writing for a church that's experiencing a difficult time with with two groups of people who are at at loggerheads with each other over, well, we'll see what what issues, but the point is it's not actually as important as any of them seem to think that it is. And Paul shows his uh, his concern about this by picking up two issues um, that were causing uh, controversy in the Roman church, or seem very likely to have been doing so, food and holy days. Now, the background isn't completely clear. We don't have, you know, church minutes of members meetings or uh, anything of that nature to tell us what was going on. We really just have the book of Romans. But all else being equal, you'd think the best explanation is the one that explains the most all at once, right? And, uh, and so the explanation that would seem to explain the most all at once is that the, the disagreement, if you, if you will, is between believers who think that at some level they should continue to honour Old Testament laws like kosher and Sabbath and some of the the festivals that there were in the Old Testament. Uh, And on the other hand, those who think that gospel freedom meant that those laws were irrelevant to the Christian life. Now, it would be reasonable to say, you know, that, that one of those groups, the Jewish Christians, 
would, that is, Christians of Jewish background would cluster in the first of those groups, and uh, Christians of Gentile background would cluster in the second, but you'd probably find crossover as well. You'd probably find some Gentile Christians in the first group and some Jewish Christians in the second. So it's not a purely ethnic or background kind of distinction, um, even though it might sort of cluster along those lines a bit. Now, to be clear, the people who wanted to keep up the old ways didn't believe that by doing so, they were earning their salvation. You might remember if you were here, we went through Galatians a few years ago, and you don't have to get far through Galatians to realize how Paul reacts differently when he's talking to or about people who think that you have to keep some law to put you in God's good books, that somehow keeping the law is a matter of salvation. He's very different here in Romans 14. Um, So in Romans 14, these Christians, none of them thinks that they're earning God's favor or putting themselves in his good books by keeping a law. One party thinks that maybe it's something like this is part of the way of life that God has marked out for a Christian, or maybe they think Uh, that this is part of what it means to worship God acceptably, something like that. But it's not a matter of salvation. And the other party thinks, well, no, it's just, it's all irrelevant, right? Even even to those matters, it's all irrelevant. And and it's also not the case, to be clear, that um, this this is a situation where there's a really clear word from God on some kind of moral or maybe theological question where there is really, you know, it is straightforward. This is, it's not primary to the gospel, but it's really clear in the Bible what God has to say on this particular issue. So you look at Romans 13, look at the end. We looked at it last week and it closed with a call not to walk in works of darkness. And then we get a list of examples of those things. And if the Roman Christians were split over some of them saying, you know, it was great to walk in in orgies and sensuality and whatever else is in that list, and another group was saying, no, it's not. Clearly, Paul would have come down on one side and not the other. Okay, and you look at 1 Corinthians 6, the second half of that, and again, you see Paul tackling a moral issue where there's a clear word from God in Scripture. And he's not as blistering, perhaps, as he was in Galatians 1, but he still takes a clear line, very clear line and a firm stand as to what is right and wrong. So, so in other words, the, the division in the Roman church, it's not over the gospel and it's not over a clear issue where there's a, a correct or an incorrect answer according to scripture. It's over issues that are secondary to the gospel and where there's no clear biblical line that tells us what to do or, or what to believe. So that sets the scene. That's where Paul's taking us today. How do we handle tension disagreement, conflict over these issues that are secondary to the gospel and not clear-cut. And when you look at it that way, it's really broad, isn't it? It's not just matters as it might have been in in this situation, perhaps. Um, It's not just matters of things where we have a sneaking suspicion it might be sinful, but we can't put our finger on a verse that says it definitely is, right? It's about vast swathes of human life and church life that fall into this category of secondary to the gospel, not clear cut. So if you have children, what educational choices should you make for your children? 
How special should we keep Sunday? What's the best government policy regarding abortion? Did God create everything in six days of 24 hours? What are the appropriate roles that, uh, and offices that women can take in the church? And the, the ever-controversial, uh, are you a cat person or a dog person? I have views on several of these areas myself. I'm sure you do too. I'm sure if we went round and asked enough people uh, enough questions about these kinds of things, we could start a jolly good row. So how do we handle disagreement in these sorts of areas? Well, Paul's basic answer, if I can summarise it like this, is not the way the Romans were doing it. You had these two parties, one party that I'm going to call the party of freedom and the other party the party of conscience. So one party saying we're free from the law, we don't have to follow it, we don't have to do the food rules and the holy day rules and all the rest of it. Um, and another party saying in good conscience I still have to do these things. Right? Party of freedom, party of conscience. And the party of freedom held the party of conscience in contempt. They looked down on their weaker brothers and sisters who didn't feel equally free to participate in some of the things that they were doing. You can hear the kinds of conversation that they might be trying to start. Why, why are you letting these concerns get in the way? Hasn't God done away with all this stuff now? Why are you so immature? And then the party of conscience judged, condemned the party of freedom. Why can't you see that God's given us his law as a good gift to guide us? Why do you ignore what God has said? Why are you being so unspiritual? But Paul tells us both attitudes are wrong. He appeals to the fact that we've been justified, we've been made right with God. He says, since we are all accepted by God, we should accept one another. Now, of course, we're free to discuss what God said and how we see these things. He's not expecting the Romans just to paper over the disagreement and pretend it doesn't exist. We're free to discuss whether we think there's a wiser or a less wise way to approach even matters where there isn't clear-cut right and wrong. And sometimes as churches, of course, we have to reach a kind of working conclusion in order to be able to carry on the business of being a church. So things like the roles that God calls women into. But let's recognise when we do that, we have to hold those conclusions lightly. We have to accept we might not have it 100% correct. And we have to respect the fact that other believers or other churches might have settled in different places on those questions. Because as Paul points us towards, in the final analysis, we are not judge. We're not the ones who get to determine who or what is right and wrong, wise and unwise. That is reserved for the sovereign Lord. We won't give an account to each other but to God. So Paul says, don't judge and don't dictate. Respect each other's choices and each other's scruples because we all live and die to God. We're not each other's masters. Let's, let's do a worked example. I'm a mathematician. That's kind of how we think about these sorts of things. Um, 
I should say, as we embark on it, I think it's drawn from a real-life scenario that I've heard of. I can't quite pin down who it was who told me about it, so maybe I've made it up out of my head, but I I think it's drawn from something I've heard about. If you have heard about it too, or if even you were involved in it, I don't intend any slight or criticism of any individuals who may or may not have been involved, any semblance to a real-life situation, uh, whether living or dead, is entirely coincidental, etc., etc. I just want us to think through using a case study that's that's not actually, as far as I'm aware, a live issue here at City. That, that was what I was aiming for. So suppose you're in a church where some of the young men, and it would be the young men, wouldn't it, have developed a particular custom when there's a wedding in the church community. One of them will have bought in advance a box of cigars, and at some point during the reception, they'll head outside, pass them around among themselves, uh, and enjoy a, enjoy a smoke on a cigar. Okay, so what are the issues here? Well, firstly, is there a clear word from God on smoking tobacco? I suggest to you that despite what British church culture might tell you, the answer is no. You can't put your finger on a verse and say, there you go, sinful. Now, that may not be the end of the discussion. You might want to have a chat with someone about wisdom and health and, you know, lots of other things. Fine. But you can't just write it off as a sinful activity in and of itself. And if you look through history or you look across the world, you see that Christians have fallen and continue to fall in different places on this kind of question. It's all a far cry from being able to say that this is, I am confident, this is sinful. So... What does Paul say to us then from Romans 14? Well, nobody's saying that anybody is obliged to smoke a cigar. Let's get that clear straight out of the blocks. But suppose, suppose you're the kind of person who might have considered joining in. You know, you're one of the friends of, of, these, of these young men. You might have considered joining in, but you've got a sneaking suspicion at the back of your mind that if you could do a Q&A with God on the subject of smoking tobacco, he'd be a it. Well, then, as Paul says at the end of our passage, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Don't go and do it. If you're not confident, if you're thinking, I think he might actually be against it, I think it might actually be sinful, then don't do it, because whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. But he goes further during the passage. Don't wag your finger at the guys who are going out with their cigars for enjoying something just because you wouldn't. And don't tell them that they're not allowed to smoke because they're going to offend you greatly when the reality is that all that's going on is you're trying to conform someone else to your image rather than Christ's. Well, of course, Paul has things to say to the wedding cigar guys too. In particular, he wants to ask of them, what is their attitude? Are they doing it because they want to enjoy something a little bit out of the ordinary, a little luxury, a little celebration at a wedding? Lots of people would enjoy a glass of two or wine at a wedding in celebration, so why might someone not enjoy a cigar? Or is it because they want to thumb their noses at other Christians in a British church culture that's tobacco negative and say, actually, we are free to do this. Ha, there you go. Well, in that case... 
Show a little respect to the scruples of others. Don't participate until you're able to do so without making a point of it. Well, we'll return to our worked example later uh, in the second half of the sermon. But maybe we'll just carry on thinking a bit further about what Paul's got to say here, because you could be forgiven for thinking that this all sounds like Paul was just anticipating the swinging 60s and the whole you live out your truth stuff that you get these days. Actually, I heard quite a good uh, description of our culture recently as being equal parts moral relativism and strident judgmentalism. Paul wants us to be neither relativist nor judgmental. He's arguing for the right kind of tolerance in these non-essential areas. The kind of tolerance that can say, we disagree on this, but that's okay. We can still be in communion with each other. We can still get along together. Augustine of Hippo, uh, a significant Christian thinker from about sort of 350 to 400 AD, he put it like this. Um, his words are quite famous, so you might have heard them, some of you already. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. You see, Paul's desire is for churches to hold together in the face of differences of opinion. You can see that right at the beginning of the passage, verse 1, where he tells us to accept one another. And again in verse 19, where he tells us to pursue the path of peace. The peace that is the same word as the Old Testament word shalom, which is a full peace, people in harmonious relationships with each other. A peace that gives people the safety to ask awkward questions about popular opinions. A peace that gives people the safety to exercise their own God-given consciences. And a peace in which the church can express its unity in the gospel precisely because it has differences over things that are not the gospel and can live and work and worship together through those differences because they don't really matter and have you noticed I've managed to get us thus far probably about halfway ish without telling you who was right and who was wrong among the Romans did you spot that did it make you feel a bit uneasy have you been left hanging well, I'm only following Paul's lead here. He's scrupulous for the first half of chapter 14 in not saying which side he agrees with. But it can make us feel a bit uncomfortable, can't it? Not having a clear party to side with. Fiona, my older daughter, currently divides all characters in stories into uh, people who are kind mans and people who are nasty mans. Well, okay, so she has of late come to realise that the ladies should be divided into kind womans and nasty womans, but... How different are we? We're all just big three-year-olds, really, aren't we? We desperately want there to be goodies and baddies and for us to be on the side of the goodies. And, and God made us that way, to want to be on the side of the goodies. But sin twists, just as it twists everything, it twists that desire 
And so it doesn't matter which side of a discussion you're on. We can all end up on the same side, which is the side of the baddies. We can all end up desiring victory rather than peace. Or conformity rather than true unity. The first thing we need to think in conflict within the church isn't, I'm right and they're wrong. It's not even, let's try to figure out who's right and who's wrong. The first thing Paul would have us think comes from a completely different moral universe, if you like. It's, how do I, how do we pursue the peace of the church? In fact, I think I'd go so far as to say that for Paul, yeah, food and holy days and all the other things we could think about, they are all secondary issues. But the thing that's a primary issue here in this passage, and you can see it because Paul falls really clearly on one side, the thing that's a primary issue is the peace of the church. Okay, so I'll let you off the tenterhooks now. Um, Here's Paul's answer. Here's the view that we should strive to have. It's in verse 14. I know and am persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself. And it's even more clearly in the verse that's immediately after our passage, chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong. You see, Paul counts himself among those who think, though he is of Jewish background himself, he counts himself among those who think that the Old Testament laws about food and holy days and you know, all that kind of ceremonial stuff, that doesn't have an impact or an influence for the way that Christians should be living their lives. You are free. Paul goes on to explain, you are radically free. You are so free You are free not to use your freedom to the fullest. You are free not to flaunt your freedom when it could tear down rather than build up. And this, too, is really countercultural, isn't it? Nowadays, people get told, if you're not using your freedom to the max, well, then you can't really believe that you're free at all. But F.F. Bruce put it like this, commenting on this passage. So completely emancipated was Paul from spiritual bondage that he was not even in bondage to his emancipation. I'll read that again so that you can follow it. So completely emancipated was Paul from spiritual bondage that he was not even in bondage to his emancipation. Paul lived so as not to give offence to Jews while accommodating himself to Gentiles. His priority was whatever would serve the interests of the gospel and the highest well-being of those around him. So yes, you are free not to live under the Old Testament law. Now, that's probably not a live issue for many of you. It's probably not news, but I suspect it is a thought worth chewing on. Paul's admonition, not for the sake of food or drink or Sabbaths, 
or minor theological questions, or the right way to go about church life, or political opinions, or educational choices, or cats or dogs, or any of it, not for the sake of any of those things to destroy the work of God. You are radically free. So use your freedom to build others up. Let's go back to our worked example. We thought about how Romans 14 applies to the pursuit of peace, but what does it look like in terms of radically using freedom to build others up? Well, imagine yourself in the shoes of one of our cigar smokers at a wedding. I'll give you a moment because it might be tricky. Your motivation, okay, let's assume your motivation is fine. You'll smoke your cigar in celebration, giving thanks to God. But you find out there's, there's a guy at the wedding. He's a new Christian. He's new to the church. He's had a real problem with tobacco addiction. He's still quite wobbly. Personally, he's persuaded that smoking is probably sinful. But he's also really struggling to give it up. And he also is really struggling to integrate into the church. How do you think it's going to land if a bunch of young guys, his kind of age, the kind of group he might be involved in, walk back into the reception having clearly just lit up? Paul says, on this occasion, for the sake of this weaker brother, yes, you're free to smoke, but you're bound to your brother for his good. So use your freedom not to smoke in order not to tear down but to build up. A better way, if you can do it, find something else that he, you could do to celebrate that he could be invited to and involved in. Use your freedom to build up. Well, there's our worked example. It's a secondary issue. It's not clear cut. So don't condemn. Don't participate if you're not persuaded it's not okay. Uh, Sorry, if you're not persuaded it is okay. Uh, Don't participate out of contempt for those who have different scruples. Don't participate if it risks tearing down a brother or a sister in Christ. And I know it might sound really heavy with a whole list of things you're not to do. But actually those don'ts are what creates the freedom for us to make our choices because they set the boundaries for our choices. And within those boundaries, we are free. You may eat of any tree in the garden except for one. That's God's model for freedom. He didn't tell Adam and Eve which tree they had to eat from, did he? He told them which one they mustn't eat from. And they were free to eat from any other. That's the kind of freedom that God created us for. And really, we shouldn't have needed Romans 14 to have been written to tell us all of this. That we shouldn't live in uh, contempt or condemnation, that we should use our freedom to build up and not to tear down. I mean, sadly, we do need Paul to have written Romans 14. I'm not saying it's an unnecessary chapter. I'm just saying we shouldn't have needed it. Because it's a conclusion that drops straight out of Romans 8.29. We're being conformed to the image of the Son. Consider it. Who is the most unconstrained, the freest? Why, it's the sovereign God. 
And what did the sovereign God do? He created. He made something that was other than himself in order that he might take responsibility for it. I mean, among other goals that he had, but one of them was to love it and to care for it, to bind himself to it. And he bound himself in covenant to Abraham, giving him a promise of a land and a people. And in the fullness of time, God the Son laid aside his majestic and sovereign freedom, and he constrained himself to the form and nature of a human, the Holy One, who dwells in unapproachable light, cloaked himself so that he might live among darkened sinners like you and me. The Eternal One subjected himself to death on a cross. The Righteous One became sin for us to make peace between a sinful people and a holy God. And the ever-living one burst the chains of slavery, of sin, and of death for his people, for you. This is gospel logic. God has always acted out of his supreme freedom for love, for peace, for the good of the other accepting unconditionally all who trust in Christ. And you and I, believers in Christ, we can mirror that, but imperfectly. Praise God that he has done it so perfectly that even our failures in this area are forgiven on account of Christ. Let's pray. I'm going to use some words that are drawn from the Book of Common Prayer. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Saviour, the Prince of Peace, give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we're in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatever else may hinder us from godly union and agreement that as there is one body and one spirit and one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so we may from now on be all of one heart and of one soul, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, faith and love, and with one mind and one mouth, glorify you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.